I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Talk. We're going to start with a quick recap, um, like we did last week, too, just to kind of go over what happened in last week's reading. So, so much happened. Um, we start out kind of with a flashback. Well, a chapter that goes flashing forward and flashing back. We learn about Sliprock and um, Aubrey's relationship with him and finding out that Iris is pregnant. Um, and then we kind of flash forward to him walking Melody through that same neighborhood. And this chapter, we'll also kind of find out what their living situation is in the current at the current point. So Iris never came back and lived in that same house after Oberlin. But she did come back to New York. So we find out a little bit more about that. Um, the next chapter, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later, is all about jam. So that one we will definitely have to come back to. Um, and then we go next to Malcolm and Melody. I think an important part of this chapter was that Melody also knows that Malcolm is gay. Um, but they it's kind of about their relationship after the party. And then we um, go on to 18, which is Sabe's chapter. So that's kind of... One of the ending ones where we're kind of wrapping up some of the character stories and finding out what happens to Aubrey and to Po'boy and kind of where they're at at the moment. Chapter 19, we see this like really interesting chapter of Melody's birth from her perspective and it's like told as a memory. So it's like Melody is like recalling um, her birth experience, which is very interesting. We get that. Um, Chapter 20 deals with Iris in like the wreckage of breaking up with jam and how she feels about that and we also get a flash backwards into some of her earlier relationships and the difficulties she had with Aubrey early in their relationship and with other men when she was young and then chapter 21 the last chapter we bring it all home um, Melody is getting ready to go to Oberlin it's just Melody and Iris now they're selling the house and then it ends in such a beautiful way with them cracking open the stairs to find the gold that their grandparents have left for them. So that's what we read this week and we finished the book. I like cannot have a picked a better, like, I mean, th- we picked it randomly. We just drew this out of a hat from a number of suggestions. And I think this was just the perfect first book. I think so too. It was a good read. There was a lot to talk about, but it also wasn't an extremely dense read. So I feel like it was a good one to start with. So this week we actually week. have a guest on our podcast. We have a guest. <laughs> Yay. James, do you want to do you want to have him introduce himself? Yeah. Do you want to tell James, us who you are? James, yourself. What are your hopes Great. and dreams? Give us your <laughs> spiel. Um, what, yeah. Yeah. Give us your elevator pitch. What should I what should I include in my spiel? Whatever you want. Um, so my name is James Carter. Um, I am now a PhD student um, at Columbia Business School with Erica. Um, I'm originally from Austin. Um, This was actually a great and interesting sort of experience because in undergrad, I was an English major. So reading this book through that lens, um, also getting like, you know, vibes from Morrison um, and Larson and some of the other sort of big um, African-American writers was it was like nice to sort of see those themes come out. Um, But it was also great because I don't get to read for pleasure that often. So it was a nice um, experience to be able to sit and read a book um, and digest it in a way that um, was more for the soul than for the brain, if that makes sense. 
I want to know everyone's overall impressions of the book and what you think the core message um, Jacqueline was trying to get across with these characters or maybe one message that you resonated with in particular. One of the things that I will take away is this idea of legacy and like what that means. Um, because I think for different characters in the book, it means different things. And at some points, that's explicit. And at other points, it's not. Um, which I think leaves room for the readers to interpret and sort of take away what they think about legacy, how they think about um, intergenerational like conflict and relationships, um, but basic, but how we come to make sense of ourselves in part through um, what you know our parents, our grandparents think is best for us, but also what legacies they want to leave behind, what impressions we want to leave behind, how we sort of develop who we are and what we want um, in spite of that sometimes and um, in service of that at other times. So I think it's a really powerful story about legacy and about family um, in ways that, again, it's like, it's very explicit sometimes, but I think it's subtly throughout the entire, the entire, um, the entire text. So that's what my takeaway was. This is like a book where even though the characters may have issues with each other, you love each one of them. Like even Iris, who makes decisions that people might not agree with, you can still like really resonate with her and how damaging her early relationships with men are and like kind of this baggage that she carries. She has this one chance of like an obsession with Jameson that she can't quite resolve. Um, and like, I just feel like you really empathize for each one of these characters, even Malcolm, who we don't meet for very long, even Sliprock, like each of these characters really are so complex, um, but still like so easy to relate to the story I think, or the story I got out of this, I'll say it's not the story maybe that Jacqueline's telling, but the story that I got out of this is like, or something that resonated with me is that you see in just this small family and this like inner group of characters, how different people can be even in the same family. And especially with like Melody growing up, you just see how even from such an early age, she's so different than her parents. Um, she has like her own personality, her own intelligence. She's going through her own journey in the same way that like Sabe is very different from Iris and they have very different personalities and drives and motivations. Um, so I resonate with that a lot of like someone whose family, like we all are very different people, but the things that unite us are this like shared family history, the legacy we have, trauma, like family trauma, and then also kind of like the the things you build for your family, like Sabe passing down the gold bars to her um, to her future children. So it's like both how families are connected in some ways and also very disconnected in other ways. I do think you two said basically everything I felt about this story, that it is extremely interesting, the generations that you're learning about and how they change as you watch all these people grow up and you understand what they're carrying with them, the good and the bad, which is the first question that I wanted to talk about as well. I do think she's also a very poetic writer, so it was an easy read. Um, and you could read it very quickly, but I also think that we read it slowly allowed us to kind of sit with all of the things she wanted us to think about. And I feel like with a book like this, normally I would finish it in like a day, because, like James did, because <laughs> it's an easy read. She's such a good storyteller, but I think taking the time to understand what she might have, what she might have been trying to get across was important in this one. Okay, one thing I want to get, want to talk about before we get into like our questions for James and kind of more of a discussion about the themes of the book are, I definitely want to talk about 
uh, Jameson and her and Iris's relationship because that's a big part of this second chapter or the second this last section excuse me so we when we first meet Jameson it's kind of this pivotal moment for Iris where she's deciding how she wants to tell the story of her and Melody and she immediately has this like attraction to Jameson and then we find out in this chapter it's progressed into a relationship although it's been only a couple of months and Iris is very intent on keeping it a secret um which I think is very interesting. We can talk about that part. Um, but then we have this encounter where uh, Jameson uh, and Iris are having an intimate moment and Iris leaks breast milk and it kind of comes out that she's a mother. When we talk about Iris and Aubrey, and I was talking last week about the power balance that Iris can call him and he's kind of at her every every beck and call because she's the one who holds the power. She clearly... Or, because he clearly loves her more, so she holds that power. And I think it was an interesting contrast to see her with Jam, because she clearly is the one who's, like, nervous and kind of, like, obsessed with Jam and wants this to work so much, and I feel like it would not be able to easily walk away from it, and I think that also has to do with why she's trying to keep a secret, like, not rock the boat. I think there's more to it than that, but I think um, she says it. she's basically at the mercy of Jam now. She says at one point she has the naked, skin-peeled back desire for someone, I don't know that she I think she understood it from afar through Aubrey, but maybe now she's a different perspective on that relationship as well because of this moment with Jam. In the chapter with uh, Jam, we also understand what the Red at the Bone references, which is how Iris feels for Jameson. She says she felt Red at the Bone like there was something inside of her undone and bleeding. Um, and that's just like such a visceral way to explain like desire, which again, I think is a theme that goes throughout the book, which is we have Aubrey's desire for both his daughter and for Iris. We have Iris's desire for a better life and for Jameson. We have Sabe and Poboy's desire to make a legacy that can last and can be protected. Um, and we have Melody's desire for her mother, uh, which is just like now it all like it all kind of comes together in that scene of like this is OK, this is why the book's called Red at the Bone. I also think it's a little bit about vulnerability and sort of exposure. Those aren't the words I'm looking for. I will find the word I'm looking for. Thinking about, you know, this sort of the visual, um, Erica, as you pointed out, of being exposed, uh, of bleeding. It's very it, it very much maps on to the scene already where she's physically, you know, leaking breast milk, but also that every, I mean, there's every character has some, I mean, also throughout Iris's story and, and narrative, we see that there's constant exposure, there's constant visibility, you know, being pregnant in high school, trying to keep these secrets and sort of being exposed by, by Jameson when she like drops the photo. It's like, oh, who's this kid? Um, and, you know, being, um, Iris's mom and her parents when they're at the school and you know all, there are all these moments of um, being like so and then there's another moment with with the chicken where it is physically red at the bone but there's also just a lot I was thinking about that too yeah there's just a lot of exposure that's happening and I think it comes it all comes to a head um, in this scene where you know secrets are trying to be kept and um, you know there's this facade that everyone's trying to put up of either being happy or secure or confident or whatever um, and we just sort of see that slowly unravel um, up until this point. I was going to say, it's also interesting, like, you're everyone's trying to keep these secrets. And I think there was a really telling moment when she looks at Jameson. She's like, I also feel like I never really had to lie. 
and you can just like feel how heartbreaking it is when you look at somebody like they probably would have been it would have been fine had she told her from the beginning but since she lied like she's losing this again so i visited oberlin uh, when i was applying to colleges um and it's it, i think the reputation and the vibe that i got was it's an, an incredibly liberal place like it reminded me so much of austin but the fact that she's hiding so much it just makes it like so stark that there's this you know she's on this super liberal college campus um in ohio like far away from home where in theory, as most, I think what happens with most people when they go to college is they do become more authentic or they are, they experiment in ways that they hadn't before. Um, and they sort of create a persona that is maybe distinct from their home life, but more consistent with how they see themselves or how they want to be. She's sort of doing that, but also at the same time, like just repressing a part of herself. Um, and it was just interesting to read that in contrast with, you know, what I know about Overland and like how, I think we're supposed to think about it as this incredibly sort of liberating place. College is liberating, like especially a liberal arts college. Um, so that was also just one of the, I think, subtleties that um, Woodson uses to make very clear some of the themes that she's driving home. She could have picked any, you know, any college. Um, and so, so that's one of the things that, um, that I think about, like, okay, so why Oberlin, right? And, um, and it becomes very, like, apparent throughout their interactions throughout the scenes that we have on the campus like why that is so. why do you think she keeps it a secret why do you think she's so focused on not like do you think if she just missed her chance the first time and now she doesn't want to have to go back on telling her it was her sister or do you why do you think she keeps lying keeps not telling her i think it's i think it's multi-layered um and i think part of that is you know shame obviously um another part is probably her desire it, it comes up multiple in multiple places at multiple times but she doesn't want to be a mother like that is it's explicitly clear in, in her actions but also i think at one point she says it and i think woodson writes it as you know sort of not a character but sort of the narrator in saying like she didn't realize motherhood was on the other side of pregnancy and it's like yeah she was adamant to keep the child but she had no intention of raising it um and i think you know so that's part so then because you know I, you can imagine that in this conversation, it's like, oh, that's your daughter. Like, where is she? Like, how often do you see her? Like, do you go like all of these things that come up that would shine a light on the ways in which she's not really a mother. She's not her. I mean, Melody calls her Iris um, and and her grandmother doesn't even like correct her because she's like, well, no, it, it's appropriate. It fits. Um, and so I think so I think there's shame. I think there's, um, you know, there's she's already lied about it once. Now it's too hard to go back and try to fix it. Um, there's also like, I never wanted to be a mother. I'm not even ashamed of it. I just don't want this to be part of my identity. So if I can not reveal that, great, <laughs> let's not. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think, I think it's, I think there's a multitude of, of things at play. Um, but, and they all manifest in different ways at different times too. Um, like she's very clearly ashamed, um, in, when she's in bed with Jam, like that's very clear. Um, and other times I'd, I just think it's like, I don't want to be a mom, so let's not talk about it. I do think that's part of her exploring her identity. Like, she is she's exploring or experimenting being at a college far away from home with not being a mom and kind of coming into her own in a lot of ways. I think it's probably overwhelming to have to come into your own as she's trying to identify who she is as a mom, but also who she is in her sexuality and also who she is in her, you know, in academia. I feel like she's dealing with a lot here, so it's, like, not surprising that she's struggling with all of it and figuring out who she is there even at a place that makes you comfortable. Part of the 
like secrecy that Iris has about her actual relationship with Melody, I think is like keeping it from Jameson in particular, but probably all of her friends at Oberlin at that point. Um, I think it speaks to one of the things that's still extremely taboo for women is to not want to be a mother or to have a child and to realize that this is not the path I wanted. Um, I think that's probably something that happens and it's still something that we're not great at accepting or understanding. I mean, it's much more like a man can have a child and can leave. And I think that just, he can go live a whole life. And I don't think, I think people would give him a hard time about it, but not in the same way that they would um, a mother. So I think that shame is also, it's part of her not knowing if she's gay or if this is kind of just for Jameson and not wanting to deal with that, but also her keeping the secret from Jameson is because the entire way that she's feeling about her relationship with Melody is very shameful from like a society's perspective. From like her perspective, like what would Jameson think of her if she knew that she didn't want Melody, didn't want that life, had ran away from it? I do think people see a mother-child relationship as like this very visceral love. So like what kind of person are you? What would Jam think of her? And like I'm sure she's worried about that too, which is another layer of shame in that. I mean, it's part of the brilliance of the book. I think the 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 common story is the reverse, right? Where to Eric to Erica to your point, like you know, the father's like, "Oh, I don't want to be a dad. I'm gonna go off and do what I want to do." And part of what I think makes the story so jarring, but also potentially like empathetic as a reader, is that this is not what you normally hear. You don't normally see a mother adamantly fight to keep to have her child and then to not want to be a mom um and so and then a dad who was willing to totally dive into that role and do it um and so having to navigate that part right because that's also you know that's a part of shame too um that you know it's not like i was pregnant at 15 but it's like i was pregnant at 15 had the baby and didn't want to be the mom um, or didn't want to be a mother didn't want that to be all that i was which is very much a part of the, the identity, right? Like our expectations about women is like, oh no, like you'll have kids, you'll want them, you'll you'll raise them, you'll you'll you know you'll do that, um, and that's not what she wants, and she's just like, I'm out, <laughs> I'm going to do what I want to do, um, and and so so back to, I think thinking about themes in general, um, responsibility was like the other thing that came out of this for me in addition to legacy because it's. Every chapter, I think we we find ourselves asking, or I found myself asking, who is responsible and who is irresponsible? Like, what, who's you know stepping up to the plate and who's not? Um, and that becomes sort of a driving force for a lot of the conflict, but also a lot of the, um, a lot of what moves I think the story forward because, you know, you're, when you're talking about parenting, you're obviously talking about responsibility, um, but you're also talking about trust and honesty and love and all these other things that very much hinge on who is acting in a responsible way and who isn't, and then who has to pick up the slack effectively um, to be responsible. And how does that change the course that they were on? Um, because you, you know, I, if, if, this is a question that I ask myself, not that I want the answer, because I think it's an awful question, but if <laughs> Iris had been responsible, you could say, quote unquote, responsible, and responsible in the patriarchal sense, right? If she had been a mother and wanted to be a mother, would Aubrey have been in the building on 9-11, right? Like, you could think about all the other, all the other, the, the sort of 
downstream consequences of irresponsibility and responsibility and how that changes. Because you can also think about the grandparents who were responsible with the gold and hid that. And it's like all of these things that um, sort of motivate how we see and frame characters in our head. Um, so I think that's very, very prevalent um, in this context as well. We never really get we never really get what happens to after Aubrey dies with their relationship. And maybe Jacqueline wants us to kind of imagine like how that grief was shared between them, was not shared between them because obviously Melody had so much of a closer relationship with her father. Um, but we do see towards the end, Iris kind of looking back and realizing how much she didn't like how they could have done it better or could have done things differently. Her and Aubrey and there's a, a, a hint of a regret for her both missing him, but also realizing, like, okay, we probably could have made different choices. And we don't know exactly what she's referencing. Like, could we have made different choices in terms of not getting pregnant or in terms of how we raise the baby or just her being nicer to him and <laughs> taking his <laughs> needs into consideration? Um, yeah. I think it's always interesting to look back at your relationships once you're older and, at your, like, at their age, you're 15, 16, 17, like – you probably could have made better decisions, but could you really have? Did you really have the emotional capability to do that? I don't know. It's interesting. All right, James, you're in the hot seat. Great. <laughs> I hope you're ready it. to spew amazing content. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hey, James, no pressure. Just say a lot of smart things very quickly. Thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Uh, okay. I know in the beginning, um, we, you had talked a lot about this book talking about legacy. So I think that the fact that this book is generational forces us to think about what we pass down to future generations. So we obviously pass down trauma and pain, but we also pass down wisdom and joy. Um, what do you think about generations carrying all that weight? What do we want to pass down and what do we have to? Do you think we have any option in that? I like the question. I think it raises a lot um, of, again, what the subtext of the book does. Um, I think so much of what's really incredible about the book is the subtext because it's so short, but it's so rich. Um, and so, But it also, I've been thinking about this a lot because <clears throat> intergenerational homes in black families is not uncommon. Um, a lot of grandparents raise their grandchildren um, for a variety of reasons. And I think that it brings, you know, it sort of closes this gap between, you know, historically, but also, you know, in, in, in the sense that a relationship between a grandparent and a grandchild is like much closer. So I think that, for example, as we saw in um, with the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, basically, or black massacre, um, you see that that is prevalent in every single generation, like every person sort of knows about it. It's part of who they are, despite, you know, attempts to sort of distance themselves from that, to say that's your story, it's not mine. Um, but you realize very quickly that actually it, it is. It's it's very much a part of why, <laughs> in the end of the book, you're opening the stairs for gold. It's very much a part of Melody's youth when she's like, this stair sounds weird. There's something different about this. Um, and and despite, you know, the actual massacre not being a part of her history, it shapes very early experiences and then very later experiences that aren't in the book um, and how she'll grow up. So I think it's um, the 
we don't have a choice, obviously, in the weight that we carry from generation to generation. But I think that the hope, right, is that we get a lot of that wisdom and a lot of those lessons, those lessons about, again, responsibility. It's that, you know, your grandparents experienced X, Y, Z, so hopefully you won't have to. Or they didn't experience X, Y, Z, so hopefully you won't have to. Um, and I think part of that comes out um, with Iris's mother being like, is this the daughter I raised to be pregnant at 15? Is this what we basically built our legacy for? Is this, you know, like all signs pointed to this not being the case. Like we both went to college. Like we're very, you know, we have this beautiful house. We have money. You know, we're middle class. Um, and it, I, th I think it just, the, the intergenerational aspect um, makes, it makes the trauma clear um, because you see it when we have, you know, in the actual storytelling, but it also makes the lessons about responsibility a lot clearer or the lack thereof. Um, and I think that's, that's really, really important. Um, and unfortunately we don't get to decide, you know, what lessons we take or what lessons um, sort of stick with us or what things get imparted. Um, but I think the, the hope at least from generation to generation is that like, you know, the gleaming gold in the staircase, there are nuggets tucked away um, and you're able to make sense of that and sort of tap into it when you need it. Do you think that, I think he already answered it, but I was going to say, do you think it's possible to live without generational trauma, like to separate yourself from that specifically as a black person in America? I don't think so. Um, and I, and I, I, I'm going to bundle in, like I'm, I'm trying to bundle in the good and the bad, right? So obviously there's trauma, but there's also the good that comes with, you know, the experiences or the resilience out of said trauma. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, there are a lot of these intergenerational homes and relationships where the trauma is not as far removed as you might think, right? Like, the just it's, and I think about it in the, in the context of, in the narratives that are prevalent in America around slavery. It's like, oh, it happened so long ago. Oh, Jim Crow was so long ago. And it's like, it actually wasn't. And when you think about the fact that some of the people who experienced this firsthand, like people who are in history books, like Ruby Bridges, who integrated schools in the South at six years old, is still alive, and she's like 65, right? It's like some of these traumas are not as far removed as people think, um, and especially when generations are in one house or when they interact regularly, it's, it's not as easy to sort of separate yourself from it. And I think um, it's good that we don't. Um, I think, you know, those, there are lessons there that need to be learned, but it's unfortunate that, that we can't. Um, and so while it's difficult or impossible to sort of be removed from that, um, it's, I think it's, it's also like historical in the sense that a very large part of um, black history and black legacy is storytelling. Like for, for a very long time, it was illegal um, as slaves to learn to read and write. So all we had was storytelling. And so it is important, and these stories often <laughs> involve a lot of trauma. So I think these, these stories and these narratives get passed down um, through, these, through storytelling, through these stories, through the way that Woodson writes so eloquently and so, not, not so emotionally. Um, and it, and it um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, there's no way to divorce oneself right from from that trauma and from that history but i think people make sense of it differently obviously and we see that with iris and melody um and how that shapes the paths that they decide to take i do have one more question about this i know you're gonna move on there but at one point um when her mom is talking about tulsa iris and her have 
kind of an argument or conversation and she says that's not my generation and her mom's like you're right it's not and it's kind of like a separation of it and then later in the book we hear iris talking about who she is and where her people are from as she says and she she claims tulsa as a part of her history um so i kind of want to know what you thought about those two contrasting points when she's kind of fighting against it and then like fully embracing it as she kind of grows up i think it it's part of, i mean it's part of who like we selectively choose like obviously like what parts of ourselves to present and i think very much to your point erica it is like this credentialing this licensing that we do to say oh i'm so for example i talk about when people ask me like where i'm from like i'll often say oh i'm from texas but then i'm like oh i'm from austin texas just so you know like that means something to most people and they're like oh okay got it makes sense um or like yeah for example like people will talk about guns I'm like oh you're from texas you probably think different I'm like no, no no i'm from austin and they're like oh got it got it and it's like that signals something of value to some subset of people right um people can draw inferences about my political leanings, um, various things when I tell them where I'm from. And, and I think part of Iris's history is very much rooted in Tulsa because of the stories that she's been told as a child and as a young adult. Um, because, you know, there's, and it, I mean, there's obviously like the Great Migration, which was not the Tulsa riots thing, but that a lot of black people moved to Ohio, moved to the Midwest. Um, for better opportunities. So there's a lot of like, oh, from Chicago by way of Mississippi or from wherever um, as a way to sort of establish, because I think this is a part where she's not questioning her blackness, but different kinds of black are on display. And there's this sense that, you know, I need to demonstrate that I belong here, that I fit, um, that, you know, living in, is it Africa House? I think is what the play the not dorm, but the I stayed there actually when I visited at Oberlin. Um, yeah, it's like I mean it's like the black residential house um, that there's just all of these kinds, different kinds of blackness, and it's like this is how I'm situating myself. Like in, like yes, my family moved to Chicago, and like now we live in Brooklyn, but like my family, my grandparents and their parents were in Tulsa. And that means something, right? It's also like Tulsa was Black Wall Street. And like uh, she's middle class. Like that's very clearly like we were in Tulsa, but then we moved. We're in Tulsa in the 20s, but then we moved. Um, to say, you know, I mean, class comes up all over the place. And I think that's like a huge, like, I mean, it's like, again, part of the subtext of Tulsa to Chicago to New York or, you know, um, part part of that whole signaling thing that happens, yeah. But that's a really, really good point. I'm going to continue to think about it. There's an interesting parallel about, like, claims and, like, the intersection of race and class with, I think it's Melody being asked um, for her and her friends, are you on scholarship when she's at school? Like, oh, are you on the prep to prep program, et cetera? And she's like, no, I'm here the same as you. My grandparents paid for it. We also see this with Jameson and Iris when they first meet. She asks her, are you first gen? And she says no. And then she also kind of in her mind is thinking about how also Aubrey is not wouldn't be first gen, except he didn't want to continue his education, et cetera. Um, and that made me think about like kind of how I wanted to ask you about like how do how have you experienced both like race and class in your high school experience and being at Rice and now being like in at Columbia, like within the ivory tower, we see this like 
legitimizing and then also like a microaggression questioning like do you belong do you belong with us do you belong with them do you belong here like we see it from both sides she gets the question like melody gets a question from a white high schooler and then iris gets the question from her like black college girl that she's now in love with mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no it, it, it was very um very much on display when i was reading the text um because so I went to high school, private high school, on scholarship, um, and so there wasn't there weren't like fancy names for it. Um, I sort of started. I the the program that or the scholarship that I got was relatively new when I got it, so there wasn't like this large. It was called Emerging Scholars. There wasn't this large cohort of emerging scholars coming in, and it wasn't didn't have the sort of institutional legitimacy or legacy that it might have now at my school, former school, but. But yeah, there were because there were so few black students on that campus, it was very clear that you fell into there was sort of like a like a flow chart of like what why you were there. And it was very easy to sort of figure that out very quickly as and I think even as a non black person. Um, so there were only like a handful of students whose parents were like paying tuition. Um, and I think other people keyed in on that as like just a blanket like sort of statement like oh where are you from and like what do your parents do and like where do you want to go to college like all of these sort of questions that people ask that sort of very clear like yeah and even in college like oh are you first gen I've never got, I never got asked that question but I talked about being first generation a lot I think there are expectations um, by a number of people that everyone sort of came from the same place that they did or you know starting sort of with equal footing or like oh we all got, for example we all got to rice like we all probably had similar experiences and it's like no that's not the case um same with my high school it's like oh where'd you go to middle school oh, i went to public school it's like what <laughs> it's like yeah no <laughs> i didn't go school. here yeah i didn't go here from sixth grade to high school as you all will or as a lot of you will or oh i didn't go to a different private school in the city and like no one in my family had gone to private school before um no one had gone to boarding school it's like all of the, these very new experiences that required a lot of covering and in the case of like Iris, not in the same way. Um, and a lot of then um, snark and um, confidence in the, in what we see in Melody. So, so yeah, that was, th- that you learn very quickly if you want to survive, that you have to, to be able to do that. And you have to be confident. You have to feel as though you belong and you have to assert to people that you belong, which is what college was about. Um, like I was very much like, First gen, black, I'm on scholarship, and I'm getting better grades than you. So here we are. <laughs> and I'm getting better grades than you. Yeah. Bye. Exactly. So I love because, that. because, again, people have to, there's a narrative they have in their head about you and who, when, what kind of person you are and whether you deserve to belong. And when you don't fit that, they have to then reassess and make sense of it. And I think that was part of a lot of the people I met early on in college and definitely in high school had a picture of who they thought I should be or what they thought I should do. And, and it's always nice to sort of shatter that mold and show them, you know, that that's not the case. And or also the expectation that then when they meet me, that everyone is, every other black person has the same experience that I do. Again, not the case. There were a lot of middle class to rich black people at Rice who were not on scholarship or at my high school. Um, so that all plays out and manifests sort of in different ways. But being at Columbia, which has been interesting, being in a PhD program, um, I, I, talk, I talk about this often, you just don't realize how many people have parents who are faculty members. And again, as a first-generation college student to now a PhD student, so you know, one day, hopefully, 
having a PhD and being a professor, like no one in my family has any idea what that means. Um, they fully support me, but I'm sure if you ask them what I do, they could not tell you. Um, <laughs> they couldn't tell you anything about the process or anything, which is fine. Like I, I get that. It's, I mean, sometimes I don't know what I do, <laughs> but to think that there are people in this space who have two parents who are like very successful, very prominent academics. Um, it's, it's one of those things that like you it, it shocks you to realize like oh like I'm at a disadvantage but like sort of not really it's like they have a leg up I'm not so much at a disadvantage but just the experience is different in like how you make sense of like trying to navigate this very complex sort of amorphous thing that is a PhD um, being at a school like Columbia uh, when I first got to New York or when, yeah when I would tell people they're like oh people in Texas when I would see them after college they're like oh what are you what are you doing I'm like oh I'm in graduate school in New York. And no one ever guessed I was at Columbia. Like I, I told people in New York sort of jokingly to see what they what they would say, what they would guess. And it's just one of those things where it's like, again, you have expectations about what you think I should be doing or like what you think I should be doing in New York or like where you think I should be doing those things. And that's not always how it is. And, you know, you have to remind people of that. Um, but, you know, there's constantly a sort of sense-making process that happens both by you as sort of the observed and the observer. And I think just like in the in the book, there you have to learn to develop and sort of not take stock in how people sort of expect you to answer these vi- like very microaggressive questions. Mm-hmm. They're not it's like the where are you from question mm-hmm. to people who don't mm-hmm. look like they're from America. And it's like Where are you really exactly. from? Exactly. Yeah. Like Oh yeah. No. Um and so yeah, I'm you know, I'm here because I deserve to be here in the mm-hmm. same way that you deserve to be here. And maybe you don't deserve to be here. <laughs> But my grandparents <laughs> are paying the same tuition your grandparents yeah. are paying. So here we are. Um, so, yeah. So I think I, I saw a lot of myself and my experiences reflected with both Iris and Melody um, in their experiences in predominantly white places. And I think that um, so everyone reading it can sort of see that. Or like, well, well every, particularly every black person reading it will, will have some sort of, will resonate in some way with every single character. Um, mm-hmm. for various reasons. Um, but yeah. One of the things that was very freeing to me when I got to Columbia, I'm very curious if you had the same experience, is that I think I always had this illusion that like, oh, once you, like people, I'm smart, but like people in Ivy League schools are smarter. And then like, so I went to Ohio State and I get to Columbia and I'm like, this is it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. These are your kings. <laughs> Like these people, yes, yes, they are very smart, but they are no smarter than the smartest kids that I went to school with at Ohio State. And it's like, you are capable. You are at this level. We are this intelligent. And it's really just this idea that society has given us that actually, well, you're smart, but you're not that smart. And I found that very freeing when I got to Columbia to realize like, oh my God, there's stupid people here too. Like stupid people are everywhere. Just everywhere. some of us have... <laughs> paths and you know especially being in ivy league schools with like people who get in because they get a special place because their parents are alumni etc it's like it really like that was for me was a burden that got lifted is this illusion of superiority that elite spaces hold on to and capitalize on that honestly i have not found to be really the case other than access to resources which is very different and some institutional like norms that are helpful and that's I think that's what happens when you go to like sitting in boardrooms or sitting with CEOs. Like I feel 
pre-working with in multiple jobs. Um, before this, like I would also, I think you think of people who are on a board or who run a hospital or who are running a company or whatever it is as this a, another level or an elite level of intelligence. And I think these people are smart, but there are also so many people who are not in that room because they don't have the privileges to get them into that room and they are not, you know, a straight white man. And that's why they're not in that room, not because they're not as smart. And I think the more that you're around people who are in these elite circles, the more you're like, they are smart, but they're not this unattainable, smarter than I am level. For sure. And I, it, one of the things, so I, I experienced that, um, I experienced the f- sort of freedom from being like, oh, wait, like, this is it. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm not like I, you know, there's stupid people everywhere. Like you said, <laughs> um, but one of the other things, <laughs> one of the other things I think, um, that there are people who are just incredibly smart. Um, and, but what's not lost on me is that there, so like thinking about Katie, like you said, this like boardroom where there are people who are really, really smart and sort of got there. There are people who sort of lucked into being there, people who failed up and got there. But there's also people who, like those people who are like, incredibly smart, they just have no other skill set. Um, and I think that one of the things that was valuable for me was coming from, you know, low income household, first gen college student, was I had a wide skill set of things that I was good at or things I could make happen. Like I was very ambitious. I worked all through college, like gained a number of like skills, contacts, all these sorts of things that I think were helpful in helping me get to where I am. Let's do talk talk. What is that? Talk talk is where we just talk. Oh, okay. That's it. About what? Whatever we want. But we have to say talk talk. Wait, we have to say talk talk. Oh, talk talk. Do I say it too? Yes. Oh, okay. Do it all over again. <laughs> talk talk. Talk talk. Talk talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, James, how was your week? The week was was good, I think. Um, time is like, what is time, you know? Yeah. I'm just like, what? Um, but yeah, I'm trying to be productive. That's difficult, but slowly inching forward on things that have been on my to-do list for months. So they're pretty good. Yeah. I feel like I'm trying to make a concerted effort to cross the things off my to-do list that take literally less than 30 minutes, but have been on there for months. Because I'm like, what is this? My whole list right now is like all these small (laughs) minor tasks that I should have done ages ago. And I'm just like, oh, but it sounds so complicated. I'm not going to do it now. I'm going to go bake something. (laughs) The baking has been on point. What are you baking? I I cook a lot of things. So I made like biscuits from scratch. Um a couple of days ago, which were great. And I mean, this isn't baking. I don't bake very often. Baking is like too precise um, for me, but I made like tacos al pastor like last week. And um, what else have I done? I made like macaroons. Baking is too precise. It's like a lot of effort. Yeah. Jason made 400 macaroons for a wedding and the level of stress in this house, I was like, remember we were going to start a macaroon business? It's off. We're not (laughs) doing it. Like this is truly, I got to get out of here. Yeah, no. That's he was too, like, I'm quitting. Because he's a chef, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, no. I, the bake, baking is just like, I'm just not a precise person. Like, I'm, I, no. I'm like, it looks like a cup. Like, that's fine. <laughs> right? You have to be like, it would be like crazy. He'd be like, the macaroons were in there for 14 seconds too long, and now they've fallen, and I've lost 70. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That, it was a rough With, week. like, soufflés and stuff? I'm like, absolutely not. 
I will not be doing it. Yeah, yeah. Erica, how was your week? We had a big day yesterday. We moved an office. Like, we moved from a cubicle into, like, a two-person cubicle. Um, It's actually, like, quite spacious. And You and James? Luxurious. Yeah. Yes. So we're, like, doing, like, there's, like, shifts of when you can be in the office. And most people, like, a lot of the students are not coming back to campus or they didn't even come back to New York City. So, um that was like exciting it's also like we moved from where our first year seat was to now we'll we'll be till like till we die till we die <laughs> how much longer do you guys have i feel That's like you're very sensitive question year or something. <laughs> another year oh <laughs> my dupe sent an email and she was like erica needs to like get this off of her plate because she could be going on the job market next year and i was like excuse me yeah don't says ever who? don't ever write that ever again. says who we I basically like just, just started that's how I feel also. Same. That's how my research pipeline feels too. That's my mindset. <laughs> when did we even get started? We haven't yet. We're still second Ooh. years, right? So for October, we got a lot of like comments and DMs that people wanted to do more of like a mystery, a thriller, something suspenseful for like the month of October since it's spooky season. Um, so we, uh, put a couple names in a hat, picked one out and Katie, what is the book that we are reading? We're going to read two girls down by Louisa Luna. So exciting. So this is a book about two young sisters who, uh, disappear in a small town and a bounty hunter that gets hired to find them. So I'm excited to read along with you. I hope you guys enjoyed this first this first round book. I hope we like this one next. Although I will say sometimes it's more interesting when Katie and I don't like a book. <laughs> <laughs> we are really good at being judgy about a book. Yes. So either way. I think it'll be it'll good be either good. way. Yeah. There's That's always same. something to talk about. You can always talk about the good, the bad, the ugly in the book and how it's written, whatever. It's always something to discuss. We loved chatting with you all this time. We're going to start reading on October 19th, and the first podcast will be released on October 25th, so just in time for spooky season. Um, this first week, we're going to read the first section, which will be about 60 pages, but look out for a detailed schedule, um, which you'll get either if you sign up for our text messages or follow us on Instagram um, or anywhere else. Our Instagram is at book, talk, T-O-K, underscore. And you can always text us to join at 614-706-7869. And that is also how you can engage with us um, in answering questions or providing your thoughts and comments. So get your book. (laughs) So get your book again. Uh, (laughs) Once again, local support your local bookshops um, if you can and are able to. And we're really excited to keep going. I think this first book was a great pace, super fun. Let us know your thoughts. Yes. Tell all your friends to join us, and we will read with you again soon. Every single friend. Oh, my God. (laughs) You can't scare them into being your friend, Erica. They have to want it. (laughs) It's worked successfully so far. Oh, (laughs) God. I am still pretty scared. Okay. Um, (laughs)
Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. Her pipeline looks great. My pipeline is thick. Two C's. (laughs) (laughs) No K. I love the transition from self-depreciating to like hyping yourself up there. Oh, that's where we live. (laughs) That's what we do.